And welcome to another episode of Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we have a special guest with us. Somebody I know y'all been waiting to hear from, although you've heard from him before. But somebody you've been waiting to hear from just recently because he is now a New York Times best-selling author. None other than my good friend, Michael Harry. How does it feel? Did they send you your jacket yet? Not yet. Not yet. I'm just, I feel good, man. Trying to be like you, trying to be a two times bestseller. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you knew you were a two times bestseller, but yeah, I knew. Well, that's what the, that's what the people say. You know, I don't know. They, they, they write about it. <laughs> in the time. That's what the people say. Congratulations though, man. I mean, it's a labor of love and you're a friend to the show, so we don't need an introduction. Uh, and we'll dive right into your, 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 your new book, Black AF History. First, the title, why did you choose it? And why black black AF history, especially after Kenya Burris got so much heat for his show, black as fuck. So, um, fun fact. So I I used well, you know this, but uh, most people don't. That I was kind of in the poetry world before you know uh, people knew me as a journalist or a Twitter person, um, and you know, ain't no money in poetry. So I would sell these shirts these sick that said black af and my nickname kind of he graduated to the black one like which poet is he he's the black one and uh so i i i was i had trademarked black af back in like 2012 you know black af was kind of a thing that i was pushing before and so when i decided to do a book about history that seemed like the logical name did you receive any blowback or have you received any blowback? Is it banned yet? Um, no, not yet. I hadn't received. It's only been out for like 10 days. So I hadn't received any blowback yet. I'm sure it's coming. But, um, you know, it's weird to even ask that question or for me to even say I'm sure it's coming. When you think about like there is no curse words in this book. The only violence is the violence that white people enacted. And so when you talk about that and when you ask that question and i agree with it it's weird how we just default to yeah white people are going to ban the truth right if it if it centers black people if it doesn't center whiteness it's probably going to be banned if it tells the truth it's probably going to be banned if it's an accurate version of history it's probably going to be banned which i think is an absurd thing and it's probably going to happen let's back up a little bit let's zoom out a little bit just to you know give a, a, a little context we're both from the south and we both know that one of the things, one of the commonalities that most um, people know and understand in the South is that our public schools never really taught our history anyway. So when you're in this moment where conservative politicians are are actively gutting our history from schools, how should Black folks, particularly Black parents, as you are one, seek to navigate this moment we're in um, as we're up against more active and more intentional efforts to erase history? Well, one, you know, I, I think most people keep saying that we got to teach our own history. But the thing, like, think about how crazy that is, right? Like, because I always contend that these aren't their schools. They're our schools. We pay for them. Um, black people pay for schooling disproportionately. We pay a higher percent, a higher percentage of our income goes to our schools, our schools. Uh, black people pay a higher proportion of property taxes, which is the main source of school funding. Um, so what we're saying is they can't use our money to teach our kids. So 
I fundamentally disagree with like they teach your kids, even though I was homeschooled, I fundamentally disagree with the, we got to teach them at home. Like nobody says, well, you got to teach your kids their multiplication, multiplication tables at home because they might not learn them at school. Right. It's broken. If you, if it, you can't learn the things that you need in society. Right. Like if you sent your kids to school and they were teaching them, they weren't teaching them how to read or how to do math or how to do long division or, or the periodic table, we'd say those schools were failing. And that's the thing that we need to focus on the schools, not what black people need to do in the confines of their own home. I love, I love the way you shifted the burden. One of the things I like most about you outside of how dope your personality is, other people may not get a chance to know you that well, is your storytelling. Your storytelling um, and the way that you utilize that storytelling to convey historic moments in this country, as opposed to more traditional, just kind of static timelines of history. Talk about your writing style and how you chose it, why you chose it, and how did you find these historical moments to write about? Well, so as far as the writing style, uh, I don't know if I even chose it. I think I write like how I talk to Black people. And sometimes it's funny. It infuses comedy because that's how we talk to each other. Like we could be at a funeral and if somebody comes there in an ugly suit, we're going to talk about the ugly suit while we're crying. Right. And, and so my writing style is, you know, people say, well, you infuse humor and history. And I was like, yeah, but it's just I just talk to people like how black people talk to each other. And the so I don't know if it chose I chose it. It's just the way that I always relate it to the world. And as far as the storytelling and the history is concerned, it's how how I always learned history and how I always think like you learn information. I think if you know a narrative and you know the story and are able to contextualize it, it's better than just learning a series of dates and names and and time uh you know, errors in history and presidents. I think the stories are history, right? And the way we teach it is wrong. It helps us be able to forget it. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car, Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports, I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear. Especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA, I make calls, I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. 
and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. You know, one of the things that I wanted to ask you is so many stories are fascinating. Robert Smalls, for example, we got people writing about that. You know, we saw Nat Turner. Tell me some stories that you want to write about. We can't talk about Orangeburg right now, but tell me, talk me some stories you want to write about that aren't being told right this second. Uh, you, so one of my favorite stories, and I, I talk about it a little bit in the book, um, but uh, Moses Dixon, a oh, yeah. man from St. Louis who had a secret uh, group of 12 people stationed around the country, and they were going to start, for all effects and purposes, a race war, a national slave revolt. And they were, they estimated like 200,000 people were going to participate. They had trained for 10 years. And it just so happened that the Civil War broke out before the date that they chose happened. But that group, the Knights of Tabor, took their dues and took all those dues from around the country. They had up to 100,000 members. And the secret fraternal organization built the first Black-owned hospital in an all-Black town in Mound Bayou, Mississippi. And so much of what you know about the civil rights movement, what people know about the civil rights movement kind of comes out of Mound Bayou, even though we don't talk about Mound Bayou or TRM Howard, but that it all started with a national slave revolt. That's how we know who killed Emmett Till. That's how we know it wasn't just two men involved. That's how we got Jesse Jackson. That's how we got Aretha Franklin. That's how Bill, that's why Billy Preston is known as the the fifth Beatle. It's why um, where we got Mega Edwards from, right? And, and it all traces back to this national slave revolt, and it's basically black people planning this national race war that was averted by the Civil War. You know, one of the most fascinating people, you're, you might laugh at this, but one of the most fascinating people I think we should write about that's not named Ray J, because I do think Ray J is one of the most fascinating people on earth. Uh, James Brown. Like, I think the history of James Brown, his contributions to music, his contributions to business. Most people don't even know James Brown uh, is the was the first black man to own a private jet. Yeah. I yeah, mean, James Brown, man. James Brown, first of all, He's probably one of the five most important people in the history of American music, which is to say black music, which is to say the, all the music in the world since classical music uh, and rap. Like he probably he, James Brown is probably the most important figure in hip hop. Oh, definitely. Right? Rock, and roll, rock and roll, hip hop, probably to a certain extent, R&B. I mean, he was. Yeah. He, for, yeah. He was it. I mean, Charlie Pride, Little Richard. By the way, did you know, have you ever, did you know the lyrics to the original Tutti Frutti? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, the two, yeah, Tutti Frutti was a, a kind of a, almost a I, protest song. Yeah. It protest? I don't know about that. Tutti Frutti was a, it, it puts wop to shame. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, well, but all of the music back then was was like that. That's what, like, it was unfiltered, we, like, which is always funny. When I hear people talk about like, ooh, Sexy Red was, uh, <laughs> you know, she's leading to the downfall of Western civilization. You ever heard LaWanda Page, Esther on Good Times, right? You ever heard Red Fox, right? Yeah. Um, like you remember Too Short yeah. from our era, right? Yes. Like 
sexy red them ain't got nothing on people like Josephine Baker. Right. Uh, right. And so like it's, it's, and again, this all goes back to not knowing history and That's not knowing me. the past. I mean, cause he, people talk about hip hop. People talk about music. I know we're celebrating hip hop. We're celebrating music, but James Brown, little Richard, Charlie pride, all individuals who helped change the game. So you could have people, uh, people like Beyonce selling out tours and Usher and everybody else. For those of you all who want to know what the lyrics of Tutti Frutti really were, it started out Tutti Frutti, good booty. That was the first, that was how it originally started with none other than Little Richard. And he went on to to be a little bit more uh, suggestive than that. I mean, it was a, if it's tight, it's all right, uh, was the next lyric. And if it's greasy, it makes it easy. FYI, <laughs> if anybody wants to know. I'd argue that, still argue that's the first gay protest song. I would, I don't disagree right? with that. Because, I mean, he got, and he got it played on radio, too. Yeah. Yeah, man, look, I'm not arguing with you over, over Little Richard. Uh, so, look, are we, should we be rooting for your book to get banned? Because when it gets banned, doesn't that mean they people buy more books? Yeah. Uh, I don't know about rooting, but I, like, I'm not, afraid of it getting banned like probably the biggest national uh, book campaign in this century is white people being mad at the 1619 project oh right like that was the greatest advertising campaign ever and so if they ban my book like i'm I, like so you notice uh bakari one of the things like you know, when you're doing out here doing work for and speaking for and trying to help black people, one of the measuring, there's very few measuring rods, like how much, how effective am I? One of the very few measuring rods that we have is how many white people you make can make mad. Like if white people are mad at you, like, you know, you're doing the right thing. Like if I go a week without being called the N word, I really feel like I gotta step my game up. You gotta reevaluate, reevaluate yourself, <laughs> yeah. my brother. <laughs> yeah, what am I doing wrong this week, man? So yeah, so you know, I think it being banned is not necessarily just a uh, helps it get sold. I think it's an uh, a measuring rod for how well you know, you are rankling and telling the truth and rankling white folks spirit and how well the book is doing, period. You know, one of the things I appreciate about growing up in South Carolina uh, is you're so steeped in history um, that we're all amateur historians. Talk a bit about your upbringing and how you came to not only embrace the difficult history of black folks in this country, but to make the telling of that history kind of your own. Yeah, so I was uh, born and raised in Hartsville, South Carolina. Uh, my family on both sides were involved in the civil rights movement and like the history of black people in South Carolina in general. It feels weird, by the way, talking to you about this because like our families know each other. <laughs> it's like it's weird to be like it's like telling your mama about your granddaddy. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I've all, I was homeschooled. And so it wasn't like my family sat down and said, let me tell you about the real history, son. It was just like you have to be around and you'd hear the same stories a hundred times and you'd hear the oral histories not recounted to you, but you just be in the rooms with your uncles and your aunts and your grandparents telling these stories and your elders and, and the people from your neighborhood telling these stories and recounting them. 
And I don't think we even know until we get older how much that sticks with us and how much that makes us yeah. who we are. And so my my family, uh, like, so the reason South Carolina, I, I one of the premises of the book is that South Carolina is the capital of Black America, if there is such a thing as Black America. Well, the reason there is a statewide governmental effort to preserve the history of South Carolina, like there was never any funding for it. Um, and my aunt started that that effort in South Carolina, the kind of proliferation of the, the reemergence of the Green Book. She, Janie Harriet is her name. She was also responsible for that. She is all, I mean, I was always kind of in the center of the fight for preserving history. And, and you know, um, if y'all think I'm uh, loud and, and adamant and outspoken, if you ever met Aunt Janie or my Uncle Ike or any of the people in my family, uh, you'd be like, God, Mike is the tame one. So yeah, I was always centered. I was always centered in history and the black people of South Carolina. I mean, that's so important. It's funny because we were both raised that way and and we're not atypical or anomalies. There are a lot of people who were raised the same way and have that kind of back backbone of, of that type of culture. I ask this of all our authors that come on the show, but how did this, I mean, outside of making you a New York Times bestseller so you can get paid more when you write and when you travel to give speeches, but how did this writing or writing this book change you? Well, it taught me more about history and how important it is. But it also showed me how fundamentally anti-Black the narrative of America is that we all absorb, right? So when you go to school, and you learn about English settlers and uh, Dutch colonizers and, you know, pilgrims. That is a pro-white view, right? All those people have histories and backgrounds and political motivations and religious motiv motivations in the case of the pilgrims. And then the black people are slaves or at best were enslaved. Uh, the Indian, the Native Americans are just Indians or Native Americans. They don't have tribes, they don't have backgrounds, they don't have cultures, they don't have histories. And so we view history through a white lens. And I don't think people understand that fundamentally, right? When you talk about America, American history specifically, you're talking about a white lens. And that's what this book tries to do, is just shift the, the, the perspective. But I did. I still didn't know how much of that white lens was uh, centered on whiteness until I started writing this book. Like a lot of the stuff that I assumed, like I thought that I was going to be heroic by going in and digging up some of the history that was lost. And I realized, oh, it wasn't lost. They just refused to teach it, right? Like when we talk about, I, I wanted to see, for instance, hey, when we talk about these early uh, enslaved people, it would be nice to just call all the white people white people. And I wish I could go back and find out like which tribe and which country in Africa and which kingdom in Africa these people came from. And I realized, oh, you could, because they knew where to go to get the black people. It wasn't like they was going over there and just randomly coming up 
finding people who could grow rice and be blacksmiths and knew how to build levees and dams and bridges. Oh, they knew where to go to get them. They knew where to go to get the people who could herd the livestock or what they called the cow boys. They knew where to go to get the horticulturalists that knew how to engineer rice. They knew how to where to go to get the blacksmiths. And so that history wasn't lost. It was just like, oh, we're not going to teach that. We're going to teach where the white people come from and not where the black people come from, right? And, and so that was the thing that I learned and that's what changed me. It's like, I knew our history was whitewashed. I didn't know how intentional it was. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA, I make calls, I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it, you can work out in it, you can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever, and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. That's decently profound right there, my brother. Tell me the most important thing. So do we, let me ask you this real quick before I get to the most important question. Do we call this book Black AF or do we call it Black as Fuck? Yes. <laughs> I love that. I absolutely love that. The most important question, how can people buy your book? Uh, it can be found in bookstores across America. Um, it's crazy when you were talking about like, uh, you know, the publicity and, you know, the grassroots effort to buy it. Um, I'm hoping you can get it on Amazon right now. This is crazy to say Amazon is sold out of a book um, of my book. Um, but hopefully we'll have uh, copies in by the time you hear this. But you can get it anywhere that books are sold. I, I was I've seen it in the 
airports and in bookstores and everywhere. It's a New York Times bestseller, not a two times bestseller, but still like you could get it anywhere. Are you is it did you read your book? Yep, I read it. I read the audio book. Everybody everybody told me like you gotta read the audio book because apparently audiobook people only like it when the audio uh when the author reads it. Yeah, I was gonna have like a Michael B. Jordan or somebody read mine, but I decided to read it and I realized that I'm incredibly stupid. I forgot how to read halfway through. I tell people this you don't read the words that you write. You, you don't enunciate them often. So you just trip up on the words that you put on paper. Right, right. Especially. <laughs> and then sometimes like when you make a joke, like when you record the audiobook, it's so long after you've written the book that I know it sounds like uh narcissistic, but I was in there laughing at my own jokes and trying not to <laughs> laugh at the jokes that I make. But uh you sometimes you forget what you write too, right? Cuz it's so the process of writing a book and then recording the audio book is so long that uh, it's weird. But I, I I really like the the name drop of like I was going to get Michael B. Jordan to, to write. But because he is kind of, like Michael B. Jordan and Bakari Sellers, it's kind of like the same thing. So, right. I was going to get Michael B. Jordan. Like, you know what? I was going to get Denzel to, to read mine. I, I admit. Right. Uh, Dan, but, Dan, you know, I decided not. I decided to do it myself. <laughs> How can people follow you on social media? Uh, Michael Harriet, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-H-A-R-R-I-O-T, two R's and O-T, one T. Hey, something. Michael Harriet is dope as fuck, but he's absolutely the second most dope person in his family. His wife is much better than him. Shout out to Michael Harriet for joining the Bukhari Solis podcast one more time. Go out and buy Black AF history. Thanks for having me, man.